take Psalms 119, 89-96. And if you're curious, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's Word. You can follow along pretty easily. You need translation, probably. I'm going to read these beautiful verses. 89-96. This is the Word of the Lord. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let's have a short prayer together. Father, we pray that by your holy word you would make us a better people. We pray that by the anointed word through the Holy Spirit that you would make us a redeemed people. I pray, Father, you help us to walk out of this house of worship today with a greater love for you and for your word. We pray these things in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalms 119, you probably know, is the longest psalm in the Word of God. It's a psalm of praise. It's all about praise of God for the Word of God, in praise of the Word of God. Now, what we do today is we take God's Word for granted. And it is well said that most Christians hardly ever read the Bible on their own. Even with all the wonderful translations and formats that Christians have access to, they still do not read God's Word very much. I would, I, would hate to, I would hate to know, I would hate to really know how many of us actually read God's Word six out of the last seven days. Sadly, for so many Christians, they only read the, God's Word on Sunday. And even then, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you could always spot the Christians. Uh, they always had their Bible thrown in the dash of their car because that's where they kept it. <laughs> Right in the dash. You see it in the back window or the front window. Now, your Bible ought to be kept near to you, maybe on your bedstand or maybe on your coffee table, maybe by your chair. But the very best place to put God's Word is in your heart. But if you don't spend time in God's Word, it's never going to get into your heart. It's never going to get in there. Let me illustrate this in a way you might understand. Is it, have any of you ever played a sport? Basketball, baseball, hockey, tiddlywinks, any kind of a sport like that? And if you're going to get good at a sport, you can go to your regular practices with the team, but if you're really going to excel, if you're really going to become a master of the sport, then you have to practice when? On your own. On your own. I can remember when I was a kid, my dad bought me a rubber-coated baseball, and he said, now get out there. We had a brick home, and we had one side of the house that only had two windows. He said, you can bounce that baseball off the side of the house all day long, all night long, whatever you want. I said, great, Dad. So, man, the next morning, 6.30, I was out there, bing, bing, bing. And that's when he said, no, because that was his window, <laughs> his wall for his bedroom. I was waking him up. So he said, you got to wait till I get up and leave for work, then you can go out there. I can remember going out there and just throwing and throwing and throwing, trying to become better 
And over time, and that's what it takes to know God's word, is to spend time with it on your own. Now, the reason I think most Christians don't spend any time with God's word, now, if this hurts your feelings, I apologize in advance. I think the reason most Christians don't spend any time with God's word is because they're just lazy when it comes to reading. Just lazy when it comes to reading. We live in, a, we live in an age now, and this idea of being lazy at reading is not a new thing. This is a very old thing. But we live in an age now where we, we'd rather watch a movie than read a book. We'd, re, we'd rather listen to a YouTube play in the background than read or spend time with God's Word. It's just, it's just sheer laziness that keeps people from reading and spending time with God's Word. Reading is a discipline. Reading is, is a tool that must be exercised. It's a knife that has to be sharpened. I, can read, I, I read a lot because that's my work. And sometimes I wonder how much I would read if, I didn't, if this wasn't my work. That, that, and, that's, and that's a real thing to think about. Sometimes your work can cause you to have to read, can't it? If you decide you want to become a lawyer, you're going to read lots of briefs, lots of, lots of books with weird language and strange punctuation. <laughs> you can read some fat, interesting things. But it takes effort. It takes work to be a student of God's Word. People need to read. Reading is the greatest thing you have ever learned to do. If you can read, there really isn't anything that you can't master today if you want to. You can go down to the public library with your library card. And you can get, out, you can get books about anything. They have biographical books, historical books. They have technical books. You can learn about any kind of thing just through reading and reading and reading. Reading God's Word, however, will be the most profoundly powerful thing in your life. It will reshape you. God's Word will almost rewire the way you think because it is not like any other book. God's Word is a powerful book. Is not my Word like a hammer, the prophet says in the Old Testament. Is not my Word like a fire that burns. God's Word is, is, like, a, is like atomic power. It's a bomb that can go off inside of you, but you have to take it in. Now, the Psalms are some of my favorite portions of Scripture because they're actually songs. Now, if you've ever had the chance to see a metrical psalter, a a translation of the Psalms where they're put in, in, in a format for singing, you'll find these are very beautiful. They're very wonderful things. And for many, many years, down through the centuries, for a long time, both Christians and Jews, the full extent of their musical selections in worship was from the Psalms. These are inspired songs, inspired by God, about God, and for God's glory. Now, the Psalms are written by various people. We don't know, who, we don't know the identity of all the authors of the Psalms, but certainly there are the Psalms of David. The Psalms of Moses. There's one Psalm of Solomon. There's the Psalms written by the mysterious Asaph. You'll see his name a lot in the Psalms. And others. And the Psalms also come in different styles. There are songs of lament, songs of joy. There's different kinds of Psalms because we have different kinds of emotions. If you are an emotional person, you'll find the Psalms to be very, very helpful to you. And if you're not an emotional person, well, the Psalms will help you to grow some emotions. <laughs> Now let's look at this passage again. Notice, first of all, the psalmist talks about the Word of God. The Word of God. Have you ever, most people say this psalm was written by David. And if David talks about, talks about the Word of God, 
talks about the law of God, the statutes of God, the promises of God, the precepts of God, different phrases for the word, for, to identify God's word. The question is, what kind of Bible did David have? What kind of Bible did he have? And I don't mean if it was a leather-bound copy or hardback copy. I mean, what exactly did he have that consisted of the Word of God? Now, we live here in the New Testament era. We got the Old Testament. We got the New Testament. We got 39 books in the Old. We got 27 in the New. 1,186 chapters in the Bible. Over 100,000 individual verses. And I don't know how many words. But that's not the Bible David had. David didn't have the Bible that you and I have. David had a smaller bit of God's Word. What David had, if David wrote this, was David had just the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when David's talking about how glorious and wonderful and delicious the Word of God is, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible that sometimes you and I tend to what? Skip over. <laughs> he had those five books. And he had the most ex- one of the most exciting books in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. And then the book of Judges. And we don't know if there any, was any other Bible, any other biblical books, although there probably was the book of Job. Because the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Moses, they say, is the person who first wrote down the oral tradition of the story of Job. What if growing up at your father's knee or your grandma's knee, you heard from a small kid the story of Job? What a, what a wild story it is. What a, what a twister. What a mind blower. How there was a man on the earth who was so up, upright and who eschewed evil. That means he sped out evil. He was against evil with all his might that Satan himself noticed him. And Satan goes in before God to give an account of what he's been doing. Because my friends, don't forget this. The devil can only do what God lets him do. And as David, as, as Satan goes in before the Lord in the heavenly throne room, I guess the heavenly throne room, to give an account of what he's been doing, God says, have you noticed my servant Job who is down there just doing a bang up job? And Satan says, yes, I have. And the only reason he serves you so faithfully, the only reason he's so good, good, good before you, the only reason he loves you is because you blessed him. And God says, you want to bet? And Satan says, I'll take it. So God says, you can take away all of his stuff. So just in a single day, Job loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his kids, 10 kids dead in one day. I've had this fear many times with the different children. This is, this is not an insult to Leslie's driving or any other kids' driving. <laughs> but sometimes when the kids are all in the car and they take a trip together, you think, oh, I hope they don't all get wiped out. I'd like to have at least one. Valerie and I don't want to start over. (laughs) I've had that thought more than once. And to lose them all in one day, what a shot in the guts. And the Lord, Job's wife comes, she says, hey, it ain't going too good over here. Why don't you curse God and die? 
Because that's how she felt. She wants to die. Have you ever felt like you wanted to die? Have you ever wanted to check out for the last time and into the glory world? That's probably not uncommon. I wouldn't be surprised if all of us haven't thought that from time to time. But what a story to grow up at your grandma's knee on. Hearing the story of Job. And then those 30-odd chapters of Hebrew wisdom rhetoric. Bandying those things around. This, this is the kind of word of God that David grows up with. Not the full revelation that we have, but a limited portion of it. These books are what he had, but he knew them. And as he learned the Old Testament, those first few books of the Bible, he learned about his God. He learned about a God who both strikes fear in the hearts of men and a God who saves and loves and redeems sinners. Of course, all the Old Testament points us to the reality to the truth of the gospel that is only found in Jesus Christ. The typology is so rich. But David didn't know any of it. All he knew was what he read in God's word. Those six or seven books were thrilling to him. Were thrilling to him. Now I want you to notice four things here. Four things that God's word does for us. Four things God's word does for us. And I'm going to do this in about 15 minutes. Okay, is that a deal? 14 minutes? <laughs> in verses 89 to 91, the psalmist says God's word informs us. It says that his word is settled in heaven. His word is settled in heaven, but it's not stuck in heaven. His word has been issued forth from heaven and has come down to us. The word of God has come down from the heavenly throne into our world, into our hearts, into our lives. God has informed us of what he is doing, and of what he wants to do. We refer to God's word. We can depend on it because it's fixed, it's settled, it's established. What he has promised is going to come to do. Kara made mention of that. Though we know his word will not return void. The rest of our verse says, it will accomplish the thing to which I have sent it. It will fulfill the mission So my friends, we don't know what God's mission is or purpose is for his word. We don't know. Well, I guarantee you, if you proclaim God's word, if you teach God's word, if God's going to do something with it, he's going to do it. It's going to happen. It's going to take place. You never know what's going to happen. I have the luxury and delicious experience of having this happen to me every single week because I'm I'm up here flapping my gums, yapping like a yard bird, telling you all kinds of things about the Bible, and I don't really know if it's doing you any good. But almost every Sunday, somebody will stop me and say, that was awful. (laughs) No. (laughs) Almost every single Sunday, somebody will say, you know, Terry, That really was what I needed to hear. So I I have this ongoing affirmation that God's word works. I I wish you could all have it. I wish you could all live in the world that I live in where I see God's word being confirmed and affirmed and established and verified like I do. It's really, it really makes being a preacher worth it, to be honest with you. It It makes the whole thing more glorious. God's word, it does accomplish the thing that God has sent it to do. We don't always know that. 
But his word, the word of God informs us. It tells what God is doing. In verse 90, it tells us that those men who have trusted God's word in any generation have found it to be true. Thy word is faithful to all generations. In every generation of human history where men have put their faith and confidence in God's word, they've found that God can be trusted. The word of God is not just for us in the 21st century. It's for those people, God help them, in the 22nd century, which is a century to come. God's word is faithful to all generations. My dad's generation. Those old codgers who are born in the 50s. <laughs> it's good enough for him. It's good enough for me, the greatest generation born in the 70s. <laughs> God's word is true for every generation. Even my kids' generation, born in a world that seems like it's all out of whack, God's word can still be trusted. In verses 90 and 91, it informs us about the magnificent order of the world. My friends, God's world has been crafted so perfectly, so gloriously, by your appointments they stand this day, all things are your servants. Think about the reliability of the of the world we live in, the, the, the reliability that there is to be found in science because of God's handiwork. God has created a world with order, and it's an order, this is mind-blowing to me, it's an order that can be figured out and understood. I mean, all these natural, everything, there's nothing new under the sun, just new understanding of things. I mean, look, my friends, in my pocket. I'm gonna get to, I was going to use this illustration later. Oh, wait, because it'll, be, it'll fit better there. The consistency of science points us to God because all of creation serves him and his purpose. All of creation does. Verses 92 to 93, it tells us the word of God sustains us. Have you ever experienced heartbreaks, sorrows, and afflictions? Have you ever felt deflated, defeated, or destroyed? Have the circumstances of your life caused you to be like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says, I am so utterly burdened beyond my strength that I despair of life itself. That is the Apostle Paul saying, I just want to die because it stinks so bad my life does. Have you felt that way? Have the circumstances of your life brought that into your mind? Well, my friends, the word of God is able to sustain you. Look at 92 and 93. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you gave me life. Friends, the word of God is able to sustain you and help you. It is truly good news from a far country. It is a word fitly spoken. It is a love letter from your heavenly Father. It is a guarantee of hope. It is a hug from the Holy Spirit. It is a cup of heavenly coffee in the morning. God's word is glorious. It can, can sustain you and lift you up. You can make it on God's word. If you say, if you say I think you're talking crazy, well, I want you to think about committing yourself to regular Bible reading. And that's what you're going to find. You're going to find this Bible is a hoot. You're going to find this Bible is worth the time. It's worth the effort. This Bible will rewire the way you think. 
And if you don't do it, you're going to miss out big time. What if, you guys ever get text messages on your phone? Notifications? You ever get one from your wife? I was playing basketball a couple weeks ago, and this, this guy's phone was ringing. It was barking at us. Me and this other guy are sitting there, and we're like, I said, man, that is annoying. He said, yeah, I know. So I said, whose phone is that? And he's like, I don't know. So we, 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 we realized who it was. We flipped it over. That was his ringer for his wife. What a nut. What a crazy man. I, th- I, told, my, I told the other guy, I said, I hope that's his ringer for everybody. He said, me too. Otherwise, he's, otherwise one day he ain't going to show up. <laughs> You ever get a text notification from your wife and you see her and it says, text from Valerie. That's my wife, not your wife. Text from Valerie. You know, what, what does that mean? It could mean anything, could it? couldn't it? It could be the, I thought I told you to do this. <laughs> Asked you. <laughs> it could be the, can you pick up something? Or the ever fearful, you know, there's something's leaking under the cabinet. That's the worst. But sometimes it could be, Hurry home, I'm looking forward to see you. But if you don't swipe left, if you don't hit, if you don't open the text message, you're not going to find out what it says. And so if you want to get something from it, you got to look at it. You can't ignore it. You don't want to miss out on what God's got for you. Verses 94 and 95, the psalmist tells us the word of God directs us. It directs us. It directs us to God. It directs us to God. The place to look for salvation is God. Listen to the reading. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, and I am yours, but I consider your testimonies. The place to look for salvation is God, because he has all power. When David went to see King Saul to get permission to fight Goliath, Saul said, hey, you're just a kid. That guy's going to chew you up and spit you out. And David says, I don't think so because the Lord has helped me to kill a lion and a bear. And also to survive seven older brothers. (laughs) And so Saul says, well, I don't think you can do it. And David says, I'm going to go down there in the name of the Lord God Almighty. I'm going down there in the strength of the Lord. I'm going down there trusting in God himself. And Saul says what John Jasper said, I can't stop nobody talked like that. David goes down there. He goes to fight this war machine, this man-eater with a sling and a stone. And he knocks that dude out and then cuts off his big head and wins the battle. It's just a kid who goes down there with his faith and confidence and trust, not in himself, not in his nation but in his God. The word of God directs us to God who can save. The God who has all power. The same God that was with David when he killed Goliath is the same God who's right here with you today. Right here with you now. The fourth thing I want you to notice here is that the word of God impresses us. The word of God impresses us. One commentator calls this verse a verse of antithesis, antithesis. Two different things. I have seen a limit 
to all perfection. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. I've seen the limit of perfection. Last night, Leslie, I was talking to Leslie earlier in the day, and we are talking about cars, and, and somebody she knows was talking about a Mustang, and, and I said, well, there's only one really beautiful Mustang, and that's the, the Mustangs from the late 80s, early 90s, the LX body style, 5.0 LX. Not the fastback style. That's the other style. The one that's a sleeper. The one that doesn't really look like it's fast. It's that one. And she was asking me, and I, I sent her a message about it. I said, yes, this is, this is the one. That's a beautiful car. But the most beautiful car of all time is the 1978 Camaro. Because everything great came from 1978. <laughs> I won't tell you what people were born that year, but some really great people <laughs> were born that year. But there is a limit to perfection. If you ever get around to reading the biography of Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson, you'll find out that Steve Jobs was so particular about the things, and he, he, he wanted things to just be so. He was so particular that in the homes he would have sometimes, he, could, he, he would buy the most beautiful little house or perfectly proportioned or apartment, but then he never could decide on furniture because he didn't want to mess up the aesthetic of the, how the house was laid out. And so sometimes all he has is a Tiffany lamp, which he thought was just beautiful, and he always took with him, and a mattress. So here's a guy worth a billion bucks living in a house with no furniture, because he said the house is so beautiful, I don't want to mess it up with furniture. Isn't that wild? But there's a limit to perfection. Things can only be so perfect. Man can only get things so right. In, in, that, in that book has an interesting story about Jobs where he's wanting to put some screws in a computer to, to hold the back of the computer on. And he wants white screws. And so the engineer says, we'll just take regular screws and you'll paint the tops of the heads of them white so they blend in. He says, no. The whole screw has to be white. And the guy's like, how do we do that? And he said, but that he's insistent upon it. Eventually, he compromised when he found how much it was going to cost, which means he was a man of some common sense. You see, there's a limit to perfection. Remember this, friends. One generation's glorious attainment is often replaced by the next generation's genius. That's a true thing. But you know what's funny? Alexander Graham Bell gave us what? Telephone. Have you guys, got, you guys all got your pocket phones? Your mobile device, your cell phone, your leash, whatever you want to call it. Before there was the telephone, there was the telegraph. And then at some point, there was the wireless telegraph, which sent telegraphs but without wires. Do you know that most of us here, we all, we're still using wireless telegraph right now? When you send a text message? It's a wireless telegraph. Most people send more texts than they do phone calls. One time one of our kids was, was talking with one of their friends, and the father of that friend said, hey, I just changed my phone plan. You should think about changing yours. I said, why? He said, because at our phone plan, it said that your kid and my kid exchanged just in the last four days 3,000 texts. That's a lot of text. At the time, I was doing about 100 to 300 a week. <laughs> Thousands of text messages. 
thousands of them. So there's a, there's a limit to perfection because sometimes we go back to old things. Ecclesiastes says the thing that was will be and the thing that is won't be again. But notice the, the, the text here. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but not with your commandment. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. The word of God is different. It satisfies everybody. Kara showed us that little storybook Bible earlier. Valerie kind of gave me a nudge and laughed at me because I bought that to read to our kids when they were teenagers. <laughs> they, they didn't like the no-no fruit. <laughs> they, just, they all thought it was so, Dad, what are you doing to us over here? We're big, we have big enough brains for this. The Word of God is different. The Word of God is the kind of book, it's the kind of thing that both giant intellects and simple minds relish in. It's the kind of book that the affluent and the working class enjoy. It's the kind of book that the man on the throne and the man in the tow truck, are mar- they marvel at it. It's the kind of things that moms and master's students really just love to chew around and, and enjoy it. All these groups of people find value and awe in the exact same 66 books. How can the Bible, how can it be attractive to all those kinds of people? Because the Word of God is exceedingly broad. I'm going to give you a John Gill quote, and then we'll be done. And John Gill says this, The Word of God is a large field to walk and meditate in. It is sufficient to instruct all men in all ages, both with respect to doctrine and duty, and to make every man of God perfect. It has such a height and depth of doctrine and mysteries as it can never be fully reached and fathomed, and such a breadth as is not to be measured. The fullness of Scripture can never be exhausted. The promises of it reach to this life and to that which is to come. The precepts of it are so large that no works of righteousness done by men are adequate and proportionate to them. No righteousness. But the righteousness of Christ is as large and as broad as these commandments. And Gil, with his, with his gospel heart, goes on to say this. Therefore, no perfection of righteousness to be found in men, but only in Christ who is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of these grand demands of God. Christ is the fulfillment. Now here we go in conclusion. In the words of the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 12, let us go out early to the vineyard and see if the grapes are ripe every morning. Let's take up God's word and squeeze some of those grapes into our morning cup. Lord, here's your word for me. Here is fresh, fresh wine from heaven. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's drink water from the rock of truth. Let's take this glorious book in hand and fall in love with God all over again because this is his message of love to you and to me. Let's pray together. Then we'll sing this great old song and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we pray you bless these words to our hearts. Cause us to love your word more fully, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.